evening and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we have on Mike Keneally. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. good. Now, I want to introduce you to the people that don't know, and it's a shame if they don't. You are the, you are the guest. It's a shame. It's just the fact of life. I don't, I don't certainly don't. See, you can, be, you can be modest and cool about it, but this is a music show, and I'm a music geek. Okay. All right. So you are in the trenches with Zappa. I mean, you've played, you know, somebody plays with, with Vi and Tatriani and Dweezil and Frank, but you don't have the same reputation, you know, globally. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, but you're the, you're the guitarist player, you're the guitarist guitar player is what you are. Um, well, thank you. Uh, I, I, it's, it's interesting. It, I don't, I, I usually don't, the only reason why I'm like, like take a moment to process that is because mm-hmm. I know uh, most people think of me as a guitar player and, you know, and I don't ascribe a value judgment to this at all, but in, in my head, I think of myself as just a, a guy who makes music. And and occasionally I'm reminded, oh, no, wait, actually, most people think of me as, as a guitarist. And and I'm, uh, you know, I'm grateful that anybody thinks of me for any reason at all. So it, it you are, you're a brilliant songwriter and you're, you're a great singer and a, and a great uh, piano keyboardist. And I, 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 I know really you appreciate stuff. that. And I, I want to make sure you know that I, w- I didn't say that to elicit further praise. Just, just, just no, 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 no. The, the, the check you sent me early about compliments, that check will be cashed. And then what's, you know, the compliments. So don't you worry. <laughs> no, um, you, you are a very eclectic player. And um, because you play sort of every instrument and you're all your, you play in so many different types of bands. It's almost like your genre is like kitchen sink. You know, like it's everything but. I mean, it's like a genre title for you because. I, I, yeah, I'm. I'm really. I'm grateful. Well, first of all, in my own albums, my own music, I, 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 I go all over the place. I, I make all kinds of music, so I think that that's also reflected by the fact that I play with a lot of different types of players, doing mm-hmm. a lot of you know, different kinds of music. I'm just grateful that different people call me up to do different things because to me, it's really fun. It's just fun to go from doing, you know, like doing the Zappa band and then turn around and doing a Devin Townsend tour in the studio. Um, And then some people would say, but there are parallels between Frank Zappa and and Devin Townsend, which is also true, but, but there, you know, there, there's, there's a thread to everybody that I work with, but there's also real variety of distinct stuff between. I think the big thing with with comparing like Zappa or like just being commercial, I think the thread for anybody that wants to be original and wants to do their own thing and be really creative and not worry about being, um, you know, worrying about the money part of the business and just wants to be a good performer, you're already leaning towards the Zappa attitude. You know, you're just trying to be a creative entity and you're going where the song takes you. Well, oh, sure. Um, I do, yeah, I, I really am like a follow the, follow the music guy. That's, that's what I get from your albums. I mean, because sometimes you'll be have like a, a, a crazy fusion and next thing you have something beautiful like, um, is it your house? Is it Tyler, mm. our house? The, with Andy Partridge, yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you. And then you have something crazy where you're just shredding, like you know what I'm saying. It's like you're, all, yeah. it's a song. You, you it's, it's not a, a, a style. Well, I was, you know, I just like, I grew up loving the Beatles was the first thing, so I, I will always have that thing of wanting to do melodic and, mm-hmm. and nice chord progressions and, and jangling guitar tones and all that stuff. And then I, you know, Zappa happened and Keith Emerson happened, and I, so with Emerson, I got excited about the organ, which was my first instrument, and just about keyboard in general. And then uh, I also, you know, just got excited about a lot of notes uh, placed in odd uh, ways with, with Zappa. That was just always really exciting to me. Um, and and so all that stuff sunk into to what I was doing when I started making records. 
at, at first it was really Zappa. Like the first album Hat is is so Zappa, <laughs> and uh, and was actually the only album of mine that Frank got to hear, which I was really grateful for. You like it? Actually, he did. He told me he thought it was great. For people are watching, we'll, we're going to. Um... Mike's history in a second, but I'm also like a lifelong fan. So I'm just, we're just kind of geeking out here for a minute. I, just want to, I hear, here's the thing though. I'm going to say, honestly, this is a compliment. I think anybody that's been part of the Zappa family tree has that sound in their album. It's a free flowing sound. It's like, there's nothing holding you back. And you could say that with Vi, with, with Dweezil. Like every album is different, has different sounds. And there's certain things about the way that the chords and the progressions and the, even the notes and the keys aren't locked in the timing goes for the song and not just, I mean, goes with the song structure, not to be. Yeah. I think of it as a more natural thing. It's, it's like, you know, it's topographical. It's following a landscape. And yeah, I think we all share that. And I think there's no doubt that Frank, Frank is the reason why. (laughs) It is a a theme, but you guys, all those, but all those albums, all you guys sound different, but you guys sound the same on, on, if if you know Zappa, you you guys do have a a family lineage there too. It's kind of neat like that. Yeah. Well, but but, I mean, at first it's like, it's so attractive. You can't help yourself. Like you look at flexible, which was for, for, uh, for Steve kind of what hat was for me, you know, it's your first statement and you're still really enthralled by Frank and and it it gets all over it. And then the more you do it, the more you make records, the, the more stuff you find to express that, that is more just like a pure expression of yourself and is not so much, uh, you know, so heavily uh, influenced by these these uh, styles and, and looking. It's Frank, it's just, a, it's, it's really uniquely powerful, Frank's whole thing, his world. It's not just the music, it's, it's, it's like the energy that, that he creates, the energy that his family creates. Being, being a part of that world is extremely powerful. And uh, and like I was still in the midst of it when I made the first couple of records and I made right. a hat and bought that dust back. I was in blues and pants, so I was like still steeped in Zappa, and it totally got all over those records. You, I was jumping now for the people. <laughs> you started, you joined Zappa's band when your first big bands. If you could tell your great story, a few people that haven't heard is I love it how you got with the Zappa. Thing. Oh sure, it's so I was twenty five, which is late nineteen eighty seven, and uh, and I had heard. I've heard on the, the Zappa hotline, uh, 818 Pumpkin. I don't know how old you, you are, so I don't know if you were calling the 818 Pumpkin hotline. I was actually, I just made a joke with Dweezels the other day about that because I had, I had an album for me with the pumpkin line. I said, we should call it. <laughs> like, like, I don't think anyone's going to answer. I'm like, if somebody does, actually, it might be even weirder. <laughs> sure. It's just, you know, a voice from the past. Yeah. Um, but but uh, so I was calling 818 Pumpkin, uh, which was the, the information hotline at the Zappa office. Uh, routinely at least once a week and uh and this was you know 1987 so the last zappa tour had been in 84 and he swore he was never going to tour again so right. uh one day i called i guess it was late september or early october of 87 and the outgoing message said that frank was in was in rehearsal with a new band which was huge news so my first thought was that i would get to see another show right how old were you i was 25 and I had already seen him, uh, like this is 87, so 10 years before, September 77, I saw Frank for the first time. That was early in the, the, the tour with the Baby Snakes band, the first tour with Adrian and, and, uh, um, and Terry. Well, Terry had done some. It was, it was the tour that Adrian did, the movie that's in Baby Snakes, Shaking Movie Band. So that was the first Zappa band I saw, and I love that show. 
they did a funky sport too, which I couldn't believe. The problem is, you can you can mention every album. I go, I love it, except for, well, except for Thingfish. So I'm like, well, all right, that's yours. <laughs> oh, someday, someday you'll be ready for Thingfish. It's it's uh, you just know. can't you can't approach it like an album. It's a it's a play, you know. Um, all right, it's, a, it's that, a radio I'm gonna, play. I'm gonna take it with a grain of salt. And somebody you're gonna text me. I finally get it. I finally get it. Yeah. The thing, you know, it, the, the disappointing thing about Thingfish on first listening was how much of it was recycled. Uh, uh, but it's once you get used to that, it's like, oh, that's what it is. Then you start to, you know, get you start to get some out of it. Honestly, total tandem, total, total, no, no, tandem, that's fine. Uh, total tangent. I mean. Uh, I think I prefer reading it in Them or Us, the book, uh, to hearing it in some ways. Do you, do you know that book, Them or Us, no, the book? No, uh, Frank I don't. Um, and, uh, it's out of print now, but it's a, it's a, it's a book that Frank wrote in, the, in 1984, which was published in 1984. And it ties together many of the narrative works from his mm -hmm. career. Uh, Thinkfish, Joseph Wright, Billy the Mountain, Gregory Pecker, uh, various other things. It, and it's basically it's a book length elucidation of the idea of the project object which is that everything yeah. that he created is just one big thing so this book brings together a bunch of those things but ties them together with a bunch of stuff that's unique to the book and it's just funny it's shit it's really really funny there's some stuff there's some writing from frank in this book that is like my favorite like there's a thing in there about a pony ride billy's pony ride that goes on for like 20 pages it is so it's so funny it's ridiculous but it's it's like you read it as a book, and you can uh, you can do the characters in your head any way you imagine when you read his words. And sometimes I find that the way this is getting esoteric, the the way that Frank writes stuff, I want to hear it delivered in a slightly drier, like slightly more emotionless, a little more Nichols and May, yeah, uh, than than the way you know the rock musicians that he asked to play the, the roles on the album, you know, they're, they're not actors, but they're, it's fun. I love hearing Terry and Dale on there. I love hearing the phone there. I love hearing all of it. And Ike, of course, is, is a genius on Thinkfish. Ike is incredible on Thinkfish. Uh, so if you, if you look at them as like performances, acting performances from people that you love, because I love all, the, all those people, and then, you know, any Frank thing, you know, a lot of people have, have difficulty uh, relating to Sinclair stuff um, because it, it's not musicians playing music uh, humanly. Um, but to me, if you're like, if you're interested in Frank's app and you want these like, pure expression of creativity, and in some ways the Sinclair is the purest of all because it's, it's just what he wants to hear and in no way limited by what he's able to uh, execute technically because he can execute anything technically with the Sinclair. So what were we talking about? <laughs> because I we were talking about the new Bill Fifth Bow album. Um, no. Yeah, no, we were talking about me getting in the band. You, yeah, um, so actually, so were you as eclectic, because you were a fan, and to, to you when you made the call, clearly you had been playing the, your own Zappa and interpreting it and learning it. And so that had been kind of your style, really. That he was like, the, it's it's, it's what I was doing for fun a lot of the time. I, it was it, I like I was excited about teaching myself that stuff. I didn't have any of it on paper, except for a couple of tantalizing snippets in Uncle Meat. There were little manuscripts of King Kong and Uncle Meat, and in uh, yeah. the Two Hundred Motels book that there were there was like you could barely read it. Oh, my tabs, a huge score. Tabs were and, horrible back then too. They were never right. Well, except that he, it was in his own. Oh, it is? Okay, hand. okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was in the actual booklets that came with the albums. Uh, so I was able to, you know, just like squint and study uh, some of his actual writing and begin to understand, oh, this is mathematically how the, uh, 
the melody in uh, in Uncle Meat works. And I think that there are some odd groupings in Uncle Meat, but looking at those uh, those uh, scores, those little handwritten manuscripts, I saw you know like odd groupings, fives, sevens, quintuplets, septuplets, you know, five notes uh, spaced evenly across one beat. Uh, and that was the first time I'd, I'd uh, encountered anything like that. So, so I, I, from those little reproductions in the booklets. Uh, so I would teach myself, teach myself Zappa stuff to challenge myself. I never had guitar lessons. I only had uh, organ lessons. So one of the things that I would, was doing was listening to the music that I loved and trying to figure out the guitar parts. I, I was a huge Gentle Giant fan. And when I was 16, I learned all the Gentle Giant guitar parts one summer. I would be go out and just, and just stay home and, and figure all that stuff out. So I, was, I would try to learn the Black Page. I would try to learn, you know, the little complicated bits of Zappa music that, you know, was uh, delightful to me <laughs> for one reason or another. Um, so by the time, you know, I found out, okay, Frank is, is in rehearsal with a new band. And I quickly just graduated from, boy, I can't wait to see the show, and to, man, this is probably my last shot at getting in the band. So, because I used to dream about playing with Frank. And the, another aspect of the story is that a couple of years before, in 1985, Frank was at the, the, the office taking phone calls from, uh, from people. They said on the Red 8 Pumpkin, if you, if you call the Zappa office between blah and blah on this day, Frank will be here in the office taking calls. So I was like, I think I was, I, I finally got through two minutes after the, uh, the, the, the supposed end of the, of the window, but I refused to stop calling. And, uh, and, you know, so finally somebody picked up and, and they said, okay, Frank, we'll take one more call. So I was the, the last call that he took. And uh, I wanted to know what, uh, what phone Eddie sang at the end of Strictly Genteel <laughs> when it goes, uh, uh, I know tonight, I positively, I just have to get bent, reamed, and wasted. And I never knew that that's what they were singing because the way they pronounce it and the, the way the, the melody right. scans there, it's really weird. Bent, reamed, and wasted. Okay. Sped is a weird resolution story. So I never knew what they were saying. Anyway, I, I got an answer to that question and then I told him that I, it was my dream to play with him. And, and he said, well, I'm, I'm never going on the road again, so I keep dreaming. That's literally what he said. So, so uh, two years ago, I find that he's in rehearsal with a new band, and I'm like, "How dare you tell me that you're never going on the road again?" And now, and now you've got a band together. So, I, I called up the office and I said, "I don't know if Frank's looking for anybody, uh, but I play guitar, keyboard, and I sing, and I, I've taught myself a bunch of Frank stuff. I know all of his music. By saying I know all of his music, I just meant that I was familiar with all of it. But I also said that I had taught myself a lot of it." And, and, that I've, you know, some people have, have said to me, is it true that you could play every single Frank Zappa song? And I never, I never presented myself that way. All, all I said was, is that I can play a lot of it. All of it is up here because I've, I've spent so many hours listening to all the records. And I knew I had an ability to, like, if somebody mentioned a song to, to me, I could like hear it in my head and kind of figure it out. And noodle, noodle it out. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I thought I could offer Frank. And, uh, and Gerald Fialka is the guy who took the call, and I owe him a lot because he thought he, he perceived enough sincerity in what I was saying to, uh, to pass it on to Frank. And then but the next day or a couple of days later, I, I got a call you know, from a woman saying, will you hold for Frank Zappa? 
and I said, yep, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then Frank got on the phone and he said, I hear you know all of my music. And I said, oh, I'm familiar with it all, yeah. And he goes, you know how many songs that is? I go, yeah, they're all in the next room. And he goes, and you can play it? And I, and I was like, yeah, I've taught myself to play a bunch of it. And he goes, I don't believe you. <laughs> he says, get your ass up here and prove it. Um, so my brother drove me from San Diego to Los Angeles while I sat in the back of the car playing every Frank Zappa song. I could well, you must have been nervous as anything, huh? I was panicked. I was, I was literally having, you know, I was, I was shaking and, and, and stuff. And, and, uh, and my brother pulled off the road and turned around and looked at me and said, uh, you will never be more ready than you are right this second. Very cool. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, and, I, and I calmed instantly. It was actually one of the wisest things anybody said to me. <laughs> um, uh, the last thing and, he ever said was wise to me. Yeah, yeah. What's that? I see. That's what you mean. Like that was the last thing he said. You just need one good wise thing told to you. That's it. <laughs> so he, you know, he did put my mind at ease, and and uh, and I we got to this huge uh, rehearsal space, which was formerly Francis Coppola's uh, Zoetrope Studios, which is where uh, Frank was rehearsing, and it was enormous. It was a, it's this huge cavernous space. And I was practicing guitar in the, in the back of the car the whole time. So I walked in with the guitar in my hand, you know, like I just, like I just came in off the road barefoot or something. I was, you know, and, and, and he, uh, he sees me from like across the, you know, a, a football field in this, in this huge studio and goes, Hey, nice case. <laughs> and, uh, and then he had me plug into Ike Willis's amplifier. And uh, a single ear was playing the Black Page, so I, I got plugged in and started playing along, playing along with the Black Page, so I could demonstrate to him that I knew things. And he had told me on the phone to learn um, what's new in Baltimore and Sinister Footwear too. And Sinister Footwear, I have learned because I don't know if you ever heard, but it came out a couple of years ago in one of the box sets, Halloween '81, uh, the, the live at the, at the Palladium in New York on Halloween 1981. It was, it was aired on MTV and, and simulcast on FM radio. Yep. And I recorded it off the radio and I had uh, this cassette that I would listen to and a piece that I didn't know yet was called Sinister Footwear. I called it Wild Love Deluxe because one of the phrases is also in Wild Love. There's a bit that doesn't want Which is a cool little thing. I noticed when it, when it came up in this thing. So on my cassette box, I put Wild Love Deluxe or Wild Love 2. No, not Wild Love. Sorry. It is Wild Love. I might have just called it Wild Love 2. Anyway, uh, I had taught myself Sinister Footwear too, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing because I, I didn't know what it was called. But uh, what's new in Baltimore, I had never played. So he told me on the phone to learn it. I learned it that night as best I could. And then the next day I drove up to Colorado. And then I played those two songs for him, and then he just started naming songs to test whether I really could play anything he could name. And uh, and if I if I didn't know it right away, I'd say give me a minute, and I you know, just like step back a little bit and listen to it in, in my head and, and figure it out. So he could was starting to get an idea right away of, of how he could use this resource. Uh, yes, and, but you are too old. That's musician. All musicians were were paintbrushes for him. So. <laughs> he, it, it's, it, it, and it turned into a thing that he actually was able to use, like, like in, in rehearsals on the road. One day it was, 
hey, I would really like to play Who Needs the Peace Corps? I haven't played that since like 1969. And then you would turn around and just look at me and wait for me to, to start playing the song. And then we would piece together an arrangement for the 12-piece band from my recollection of, of the song. And, and from that, we would be able to build a, a form part and, and all that stuff. So it was, it, he called me Evelyn Wood, which is like this reading comprehension, speed reading thing. Yeah. But, but my, speaking about reading, my, my reading itself was poor. Uh, I, I was never trained uh, as a music reader, I mean, apart from I was in my organ lessons, but it was, I was really just playing pop standards from the 40s, uh, which has a lot of intricate voicing and stuff. And, and I, I think a lot of my taste for dense chord voicing has come from the, the 40s standards that I grew up, but I never really had to play technically very challenging things and, and certainly not odd groupings, like figuring out how to executed quintuplet and stuff like that. So I, I, I learned that stuff by ear rather than by eye. I wasn't studying charts. So he put a chart for the song Yo Cats in front of me, uh, which was just, it's a, it's a jazz parody and every chord in it is like some insanely altered jazz chord with like six to seven characters in its chord name. And I'm squinting trying to play the first bar and he just like snatches the chart away from me before I even get to the end of bar one and goes, well, that was a fail. And then, and then he uh, puts me down at a DX7, which is not the most responsive feeling keyboard, and puts a, 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 the score to uh, Strictly Genteel from 200 Motels and asked me to play the piano part. Uh, and this is a song I knew and loved. And I, and, and I thought, rather than let my poor reading capabilities hamper my performance, I'm just going to look at the chart and play it from memory. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as though I'm reading and I'm playing, you know, to the best of my ability. I'm, you know, I'm looking at the shapes to see if I'm basically going in the right direction. But all the actual notes and the voicings and stuff, is, I'm, I'm piecing together from my memory of the song coming up. And, and, you know, a couple of bars in, Frank's looking at the chart, he's looking at my hands, and he's like... It's, it became like a comedy bit because he's like looking back and forth between the two, and then he goes, "Wait, are you are you playing that by ear or are you actually reading that?" And I and I said, "Well, I'm, I'm playing it by ear." And he, and he smiled. He perceptibly smiled at that point, and, and then he goes, "Okay, well, this was a Saturday night. And the only people that were in the room were him and Bob Rice, the Sinclair type. Bruce Fowler was there just just when I arrived, but he took off, um, and my brother was there, so it was." There. Very few people in the room, and uh, and at the end of the Frank shook my hand and said, "All right, come back on Monday so the rest of the band can witness your particular splendor." Awesome! I thought that was very sweet of him to say. That's really good. That's quite a compliment. So, when I heard the story, so what was the energy with Frank? I imagine he wasn't wasn't like pressure. I imagine because he but he's focused. He's I don't think I'm, you know what I'm saying. The interpretation of Frank, I always get like he's just he's just very focused and he's or is about the music, whereas people always misinterpret like he's just you know his views of things. Where I think just think he's just music focused, not oh primarily. I, I, I think well, I'd, I'd say that he was music gets the edge, but I, he was almost as not in a hedonistic way necessarily, but he was you know very focused on the importance of. of people having a good time right and 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 I, I think and in rehearsals when the band was at its best 
the reason why it was going so well is because everybody was enjoying themselves so much and, and because it really is fun putting that music together. And at his best, he was a phenomenal band leader. Now, he didn't realize at that point how sick he was. He already had cancer at the point that we were doing that tour, but it hadn't been diagnosed yet. So that was sapping his strength. And then there were uh, personal issues in, in the band that, that you know, were chipping away at the right. integrity of the, of the edifice. And, uh, and by the end of the, the European tour, things had, had gotten dark and Frank canceled the additional dates, which was sad. Um, but that band at its best, which might have been when we were in, in Los Angeles for four months uh, rehearsing for the tour, <laughs> you know, we definitely hit some peaks. But we did some good stuff in the shows, too. And there's some great stuff on the albums from that tour. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it did end uh, prematurely, unfortunately. But, but he was equally focused uh, on, the, on the music being absolutely as good as it could possibly be and, and, and in you know, trying to have something resembling a good time at the same time. Um, The thing I ask, the reason I ask you because um, you always hear a lot about the, the Zappa auditions. There's a lot of musicians. And I've heard so many stories of different someone coming in, they're trying this, or successful guitar players have tried, and and and, and um, Frank's like, nope, you know, and it's inspired that that guitarists come back to be better. I mean, like well-known people, and just or people trying shenanigans just to get the reputation of trying to be in the band, or so it's always interesting to me, like you coming in, how he looked at you, because you kind of come in a little bit different calling and, and you know probably a different person than the regular band people that are coming in you know because well he definitely saw me as more green he knew that i was a, a, a puppy that was the band parlance that they were referred to like a kind of naive new guy coming in the band but that can be really good though too that means he doesn't have to worry about all the luggage and crap of all the rock stars and all the other you know i think yeah i mean i, I think i was like very I was I was wide-eyed, uh, a little stunned about the whole thing. I was very eager to please him, and of course, he, you know, that, that was good for him and his ability to get things done because mm-hmm. he knew that I, I wasn't bringing a bunch of issues that was, was going to get in the way of me really trying to make him happy. You know, I, I wanted yeah. to make him happy all the time, and that served his interests uh, because all he cared about was getting good. Not all he cared about, but he wanted to get good performances of the music. Uh, he, he, the most important thing, really, honestly, on the road was the, was the audience, making sure that the audience gets precisely what they came for. Because we had a serious conversation about that, where he said, I am, I am your boss, but the audience is my boss, is what he said. And so ultimately, what we were serving is the audience. Hmm. He said to me, I'm your boss, but the audience is my boss. And ultimately, they're the ones that have been providing the capital uh, and, and requesting a service. And it's Frank's job to provide that service, and it's our job to help him provide that, that service. And he really wanted to blow people's minds because, to him, that's what—that's what it's—that's what it said on the tin. That was his gig. His job was to blow people's mind. Uh, and because people had gone to Zappa shows in the past and gotten their minds blown, and now they wouldn't accept anything less. They, they freak me out, Frank. Freak me out, Frank. You know. It's, 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 yeah. Um, that's that's why people come. They they really wanted to be blown away, I think. Or at least the hardcore people were because they knew what he could do and knew what he was capable. And he wanted to to blow his mind every time that uh, to blow their mind every time that every time that. So 
he was serious about the band being good. And that's why we rehearsed for four months prior to a four-month tour. You know, we rehearsed 80, eight hours a day for five days for four months. I don't think uh, anybody practices more to prefer tour than... No, there's no, there's no way. Because he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and lost you know, several hundred thousand dollars prior to getting any of the CDs out. You, so when, when Frank uh, ended his thing and, um, and you probably hopped to Dweezil's thing, right? From Frank to Dweezil, right? Um, not, not immediately, uh, like, because Frank was effectively over in 88. I, I stayed working for the Zappas doing uh, lead sheets and, uh, you know, for, the, for their files. I was right. doing manuscripts of, of you know, all, anytime Frank would put out an album, my brother and I would get on finale and, and generate charts of, of that song. Um, so I was doing that. Uh, um, uh, Dweezil and Moon were doing a sitcom on CBS called Normal Life. And, uh, and Scott Tunis and I were in not the house band on the show, but the house band in the studio. You know, you know how most sitcoms right. have like a comedian who warms up the audience. Yep. Instead of a comedian, there was a, there was a warm up band, which were us. So it was Scott Tunis and me and a, a great drummer named Chuck Dabo. And we would just, as a trio, play um, covers of classic rock songs from the 60s and 70s. We had a great time. So that was, as, you know, in, in a very weird way as a project. And then uh, in 91 is when I, I finally uh, actually joined Dweezil's band. And I played with Dweezil and Oliver from 91 to 96. And uh, at that point, I was just going to focus on uh, Beer for Dolphins, which was my band. Because I don't. It's a great name for a band, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Things. I'd, I'd done three records uh, at that point, I think, uh, counting this thing I did called The Mistakes with Henry Kaiser. It was three albums. And then, uh, so I was going to just focus on, on my solo career, even though I didn't have any idea how that was going to work uh, financially for me. Uh, but then Steve Vai uh, got in touch. Uh, and and uh, it was, that was uh, Brian Beller, the bass player in my band, uh, that was a little distressed by that because he he quit Dweezil's band in order to play in my band, uh, and we had this three musket the two musketeers moment of all for one, and you know, you know come hell or high water we're going to make this thing work together, and then the next thing is hey Brian <laughs> I'm sorry I got to join uh, uh, Steve Vai's band no musketeers oh. no it's a, that was that, that wasn't good you know it's it like you know I'm I'm grateful that we managed to talk it out and that he's still in my band after all this time. Um, and it, it did um, ultimately work out in a, in, a, in a kind of cool way because Beer for Dolphins with Brian on bass ended up opening, you know, uh, several months of shows for, for Steve Vai in the yeah. U.S. And, and that was, uh, that you was did a double duty tour. Yeah. So I, you know, I was doing double duty playing with both bands, like three and a half hours a night total. And, wow. and Steve, Steve wasn't fond of, uh, of days off. So at one point we did 17 nights in 18, uh, 17 shows in 18 nights. And uh, which means I did 34 shows in, in that 18 day span. Amazing. Your fingers must have looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger's arms. <laughs> well, I was very young. So you have the energy to do things like that. But, but uh, we were all real crispy by the time we got to the day. I imagine. Off. Well, I've heard Steve say he doesn't like taking days off because he feels like the, it messes up his playing style. He needs to keep playing and keep playing to get better. On tour. No, it's just it's just because days off are expensive. If, okay. If, if if you take a day off, then you, then you still have to pay for for gas in the bus, and you have to pay yeah. for uh, for uh, 
uh, hotels, you know, that's, that's a big expense. So uh, Steve was uh, just was in trying to save some money there, but, but it, 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 it's, you do what you gotta do when you're, when you're that young and you've got a lot to do, it, it's really hard to say no to, to job offers when they come in. Really These are amazing very, stories. I mean, you play with such amazing people. Well, it's, 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 I'm talking about Steve and right. Steve's manager. If they get, if they get an offer from a club and they're looking at the reality of paying for all this, you know, you got to pay for these musicians, you got to pay for their hotels, you got to pay for their planes, you got to give right. the insurance, the bus, you know, the gas. yeah, it is endless, endless. So it, it's, it's real hard to say no to gigs and, and, and you end up with situations like 17 gig nights in 18 days. But like I said, we all had a lot of energy and we're just like, go, go, go. Yeah, we can do this. But karmically, it, it took a lot out of us. And, and that was uh, not karmically, but just like energetically, it took a lot out of us. You feel like you age, yeah. like when the president starts to, starts to uh, goes into the office and he has like dark hair. By the time he leaves the office, he has gray hair. You, know, you feel like you age really. <laughs> what, what, what happened, the, the, the physical manifestation in our case was that our bus blew up. Oh. And our, we, we had a, our bus catch on fire in, 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 during that tour. Which was ironic in a lot of ways. You know, Steve, as you know, is a is a, a universally minded soul. He, he yeah. has a, a large questions and large interests that his transom. And uh, so the fact that that the name of the new album was Fire uh, Fire Garden, and it was the Fire Garden tour. And the first uh, song that we played every night was called "There's a Fire in the House." And the show starts with sirens and, and red lights going off. You know. So, you know, and then it's, it's sort of like Brian Wilson uh, you know, making a smile and, and yeah. finding out that you know, something burned down a few blocks away. Uh, uh, so it, it's this, it was interesting. It was an interesting time. <laughs> That's crazy. So how does one keep going from band to band without, like, because you did stuff with Satriani too, and you've, you know, just with, with Devin. I mean, you've really just, while well, you've continued to do your solo stuff, and you've played with the orchestras and you've, is it, are you just like, is, things just keep happening? There's really no master plan. It's just offers come up and well, you're free. It, it's, yeah, I guess it's kind of that. I mean, there's a certain amount of choice that, that, that comes into play. And, and I'm always trying to do my own projects and my own albums and stuff while these other things are, are going on. But yeah, by empirically, a lot of it is, is sort of built by these things just coming in uh, and, and there's no way to plan for it. It's just like you get a call or you get an email and all of a sudden the course of your career and the course of your life is changing. So that's an interesting way to live. And, and, yeah, and there are times where there's a lot of uncertainty about that. that have been, yeah. um, you know, right now I'm grateful that the issue is, is finding energy to, to, to keep up with it all because there's, there's a lot of stuff. I'm, like simultaneously with all this, I'm, I'm working on, trying to compose this this thing uh for a todd rundgren project we're, we're uh, putatively collaborating on something but but the first part of the collaboration involves me completing the composition of 17 pieces which he's then going to take delivery of and, and mutate and manipulate and add things to and then ultimately that will become the, the score for a, a large-scale theatrical presentation this is this is being uh be awesome this is no pressure done. But yeah, it's awesome. well, it's it's uh, part of the brain trust of the thing is is this gentleman Cody Kloot, who uh, works for in Dutch radio. Okay. And many many years ago, coming up on twenty years ago, he commissioned me to write the Universal Provide, which is my 
the full scale uh-huh. orchestral thing that I did. Um, and, and it's Co is responsible for that. And he's also a part of what's happening with this Todd Lundberg project. And I love Todd. I love Todd. I still love so much about him. So I'm I'm eager to carve to carve out time in my life to to like do these seventeen pieces, but it's like in some ways because of the realities of the pandemic, I, I had to change my focus to doing things out in the world to doing things here at home. So I, I was able to put together a studio gig, and GoFundMe actually helped me out with that. And so I'm eternally grateful to the literal angels in my life who uh, allowed things to, to happen. Uh, and Patreon, if there's a thing that you asked exactly what I need to plug. Yep. Uh, I'm, I've been having so much fun uh, at Patreon. Go for it. All right. So what's what's new? What am I doing? In uh, in, in April, uh, I'm going to be out on the road uh, with this, this band that I just joined called Progject. Prog, short for progressive rock. Progject. Um, and this is a, the Jonathan Moover, who was the drummer with Joe Satriani for, for quite a while in the late 80s or early 90s, and is the, uh, the editor of Drumhead magazine. Uh, and he's just like been very, uh, he's played with a bunch of people who played with Steve Howe and Steve Hackett in the band GTR. And he's just this huge prog head. And, and he, had, he got together with uh, Rio Okamoto, who's the keyboardist from the band called Spots Beard. And he's a real character in this stacks of keyboards and he's a, he's a performer and a character. And, uh, and so the two of them started like plotting a couple of years ago about getting a bunch of you know, reasonably well-known musicians to, to play classic prog songs uh, from the 70s primarily. And uh, so Tony King Crimson and Yes and Genesis and Dan Giant and VIP and just like talking. That, that sort of thing. Um, and they were talking about me on guitar. Uh, the, the vocalist is, uh, is Michael Savage, who sings with a band called Saga. And uh, I remember Saga from, from uh, they had a song called On the Loose that was very, very popular. And uh, you can see the video. Um, and he's the singer in this thing. The bassist is named Matt Dorsey. He played the band called Sound of Contact with uh, Phil Collins, the son. So that is, it's a it's a you know a conglomeration conglomerate of musicians from different bands and areas, uh, but just this real hardcore love of progressive rock at the core of it. And, and they were thinking that I wouldn't be available, but finally Jonathan in December asked me, and I looked and, and I was available. I can it was like right now April is clear. Let's let's do this. So. Uh, and then he said, well, we'd like to do more. Jonathan has, has real, you know, uh, ongoing ambitions for this project. And yeah. we've been re- receiving some, you know, some nice interest. And, and we've been rehearsing a lot. And the band is really, really good. So I have a feeling that the shows are going to go well. Uh, hopefully be well attended and well received. And, and we'll have the opportunity to continue doing more. So my, you know, my life is going to become a dance um, Trying to make room for projects, project stuff, and zap advance stuff, possibly even encouraging double bills so that I, I can do both and, and, and keep everybody happy. Um, yeah. And but also, I'm, I want to put out a record. I, I've just finished a record, and, and, and we're still like discussing timing and strategies for that. And I'm, and I'm working on the next record beyond that. So I, you know, I just, I'm this run with that. So there's, there's always something going on. And in addition, I've you know, Jack O'Jackship, he's the, the singer in King Crimson now. The Zappa band opened for King Crimson last year at uh, 
Yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe I missed that one. You guys played New York. I was like, oh, oh God, you should have come. It was so, so good. It was amazing. I, I know. I, and, I, and now Crimson's not touring the U.S. Anymore. I know. I know. Um, but anyway, Jacko, who's the singer in Crimson, uh, asked me and Scott Tunis and Robert Martin to play with him on Cruise to the Edge, which we're, we're going to be there playing with the Zappa band. And the other interesting thing about that Zappa band uh, engagement on the cruise is that, unfortunately, Joe Travers is, is not able to play on a cruise. Uh, he has physical issues of motion sickness issues that would just lay him low and during the course of wow. five, years, five days trapped on a boat. So, so it's very sad that Joe can't play with us on the boat. Uh, my friend Marco Miniman is going to be performing on the boat, and, and he's on for the fill-in. So we'll, we'll be playing with the Zachary sets with Marco on the cruise. And you know, Scott and Robert and I will be playing with Jacko. It's one, I, I'm expecting that that the cruise is going to be a nice, uh, you know, there, there will be people playing with different acts and guesting with, with each other right. and stuff like that. Uh, you know, but I, in some ways, I think it's it's quite unbelievable that, that a cruise is happening at all in the current environment. And I might be spending some time uh, in, in my cabin uh, you know, just, just yeah. in terms of protocols. That's, uh, that's the thing. I mean, I used to be afraid of, of um, not going out to get a cruise because of sinking boats and sharks. Now I'm more afraid of what's on the boat. The sharks right, yeah. are <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, the, the, the shark now has a new... Uh, a new yeah, a new variant. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, what are you gonna do? You gotta live, right? But uh, it's all strange. We live in strange times, right? It is. <laughs> but so people can go to your Patreon. Yeah, it's just Patreon.com/slash Mike Keneally. Go to your site, uh, Keneally.com. Yeah, and all the links will be below. Uh, you have Facebook. Yeah, if you, go, if you go to the link tree, it's all. Yeah, you go to the link tree, go all all the things, support them. It's got a lot going on. A Thank lot you, going on. Thank you, you know, this has been fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll have to have Very you back find 10 seconds again. I know you're a busy man. I appreciate it. So I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, it's very enjoyable and I appreciate your interest. And it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.